Amen. Well, welcome everyone. I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and add my good morning to those that have already been been extended. Um, my name is Jeff. If we have not met before, I am the adult ministries pastor here at Flipside. Pastor Carl is enjoying some well-deserved time away this weekend with family, uh, enjoying temperatures I'm sure that are much cooler than the ones we're experiencing here. So, but in the meantime, that means we get to hang out in God's house, talking about God's word, putting probably more faith in these air conditioners than we should. But we will make it through this. I guarantee it. Um, I'm, gonna ho I'm hoping that you're going to be encouraged by what we're going to talk about today, but I'm also hoping that you're going to be challenged. I know that in preparing for our time together this morning, I was definitely challenged. Um, so it, it, it's, been, it's been an interesting exercise preparing for this morning. Last time we met in God's house was a week ago. It was 4th of July. Did you guys have a good 4th? Yes. Hopefully you got some time to rest and relax. Um, I spent last Sunday, the 4th of July, the way I've spent many 4ths of July in the past, hanging out with a couple of my buddies that I've been friends with since we were in middle school. The summer between our 7th and 8th grade year, uh, we were riding around on our bikes with our shirts off, no shoes, no helmet. Uh, it was the middle of the 80s when everything was glorious and it seemed like everything was also legal, except fireworks in the city of Fresno. But uh, we were very inventive and we managed to get our hands on some fireworks. And as we rode our bikes around, one of us, I'm not going to say who it was, lit off a ground flower. It bounced across the road into this big field and lit the whole field on fire. So two hours and two fire trucks later, the field, the fire was out. And we were uh, not arrested, but shall we say detained for questioning. And we have since been exonerated of all the charges. But since then, uh, these guys and myself have been friends, thick as thieves, um, sometimes literally. It's amazing the friendships that are forged when you spend a couple hours in the back of a cop car with somebody. So uh, that's how I spent last week. And uh, it's been interesting. Us getting together more on than off for the 4th of July has sort of become a tradition with me and these guys. And our families have now, all our, all our kids are friends. Um, so our families have become involved. And most recently, this past Sunday, we somewhat literally passed the torch to the next generation. We don't, us old guys don't even light the fireworks anymore. The, the, the kids are lighting the fireworks. And we've assumed a few more families into the fold. And uh, it's just been a really cool tradition. And so as I was sitting there in the fog of fireworks smoke with the loud music going in the background, I was thinking about these other traditions that have been part of my life. For, for quite some time. My parents come from uh, distinctly unique and different backgrounds. My mom is from a, a Hispanic, a Mexican family of about six brothers and sisters. And I remember the tradition handed down from her side of the family was this tradition of making tamales during the holidays. Some of you have been the beneficiaries of that. It was a really, really fun tradition. And if you've ever been part of one of these tamale-making rituals, really, it is not let's get together one afternoon and make tamales and, and you know make a meal. It is corporate. Everybody's got a job to do. The women have a job to do. The men have a job to do. The kids have a job to do. Everybody's involved. And my grandmother was like the, the center of this whole thing, the binding glue that held this tamale-making experience together. She had the written recipe that was like stained, like the old parchment paper from like the 1700s. She had the written recipe, but she also had the modified recipe up here. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And I remember she would... 
she would, you know, there would be the beginning of the sauce and every, all the ingredients that were written on paper would go into it. But then she'd also taste it throughout the, the process and she would tune it. She would add, and we we're like, Grandma, I don't mean to be morbid here, but when you're gone, how are we going to make tamales this good? And she's like, that's on you. <laughs> and I remember she would just be the center, the focal point of this tradition. And the tamale making experience was just such a fond memory I had of my childhood. My dad comes from a family of origin that is very much not Hispanic. If you've ever met my dad, my dad is from the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia, Western Maryland. And the tradition that was handed down from his side of the family was this, it's always revolving around food, it was this tradition of making buckwheat pancakes during the holidays. Some of you have had these before. It's, a, it's, it's not your ordinary Denny's pancake. It's a flapjack. You make it on a cast iron griddle. There's a way to prepare these things right. And they're as big as the griddle. You didn't make it as big as you can get it, as big as the griddle will, will allow. And I just remember making these buckwheat pancakes during the holidays. Like one weekend we'd have the spicy tamales and the next weekend we'd have the starchy, bland buckwheat pancakes. <laughs> I didn't even know you could get buckwheat flour on the West Coast up until recently. Because the buckwheat flour was sent to us by my grandmother from the East Coast in a big bo cardboard box of presents she would send out for the holidays. And it's so interesting, I think back, if customs would have been then what it is now, we probably would have gotten flagged. Because, I mean, think about it. There's this bag of white powder <laughs> wrapped in butcher paper with duct tape around it. What, what could it possibly be? But I remember as a child having very fond memories and as I grew up and as I sat in that smog of fireworks smoke last week, I thought about these really cool traditions that I hold uh, in a special place in my heart. Um, but as I prepared for today, I started thinking about there's also some traditions. I'm sure you guys are sitting there thinking of your own family's traditions. I've actually talked to some of you guys and you have some really cool and somewhat weird family traditions too, but some of you probably think buckwheat cakes are weird too. But as I was preparing for today, I thought there's also some traditions that have sort of mutated and morphed into sort of rules that don't have such positive connotations as tamales and buckwheat pancakes. Traditions of ways of handling conflict that maybe have been handed down from generation to generation, ways of handling money. Uh, maybe traditions of what is, is acceptable behavior Maybe traditions of who and who is are not acceptable people. And traditions get really twisted sideways when they, sort of, when they sort of mutate into these rules, these hard, fast rules that actually replace things that God has said. And so today we're going to further unpack this idea that we've been talking about the last few weeks of this kingdom that Jesus comes to reveal. As he takes on the traditional mindset of the day. We've been in this series called Getting to Know Jesus, where we're taking a chapter by chapter look at the Gospel of Mark. So that's where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles and brought them with you, uh, if you're watching online, grab your Bible off the shelf there and turn to Mark chapter 7. We're going to start right there at the first verse. Jesus says, Mark says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So if you haven't been here the last few weeks or 
You're wondering, who, who's he talking about here? We need to explain who the Pharisees were. They were this group of religious leaders who were meant to be an example of what it meant to, to carry out the ancient Hebrew Israel law that was handed down to Moses by God. They were supposed to be a living, breathing example of what it meant to live out that law. Much like political parties today, these guys were a religious party. There were political leanings, but these guys, the crux of their reason for being uh, was religious. And where it says teachers of the law, if you've ever heard the word scribes, that's who it's talking about here. These guys were responsible for maybe explaining a lot of the things that the Pharisees did. And so these two groups kind of meld together and they come from Jerusalem on sort of this fact-finding mission. And they gather around Jesus and it says they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And then this Mark writing this gospel sort of realized, he and Peter actually sort of realized, you know what, we should probably explain what's going on here. Because Mark's gospel is not written to Jews. It's written to non-Jews or Gentiles. And specifically, it's written to a Roman audience. And so they realized, we should probably explain this. And so they take a little FYI here, a little parenthetical remark. They say, by the way, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the what? Holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So Mark kind of takes a little detour and says, let me explain what's going on here. It's going to help us a lot. Story carries on. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So this group that comes to investigate, before we think this is just sort of an innocuous, hey, let's go see what's going on with Jesus today. Grab a bite to eat. Go see, go hear a talk. This actually was sort of a recon mission coming from the political and religious hub of the day, which was Jerusalem. And they had heard about this, this man, Jesus, who was making some pretty bold claims. They'd heard about some things that he was doing, which were some pretty intense miracles. And they heard about a group of followers that he had amassed around him. And so they go with a specific intent. Many other parts of the Gospels say they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they get this little recon group together and they go down and they make an accusation, basically accusing the disciples of being impure or unclean. So my first question for us today is sort of a gut check question. This is where it got really challenging for me. Do I look for a reason to accuse? When I'm doing my thing, when I'm living life, do I look for a reason to accuse or do I look for a reason to acquit? One of the most difficult things about standing on the platform, oh, by the way, make church a priority in the next five, four or five weeks. You're going to hear from some, from some really godly men who are going to be giving a message here. You're going to hear from Patient Matadi, our youth director. You're going to hear from John Drotas, our junior high pastor. Uh, you're going to hear from Jeff Copeland, one of our youth volunteers. So make church a priority over the next couple weeks or next few weeks. But one of the biggest challenges about standing on the platform and sharing a word with a congregation is when you realize that the message you're sharing 
is just as much for you, if not more for you, than it is for the people you're speaking to, this is where it got really challenging for me. Because if I'm telling the truth, I find it really easy to accuse. I find it really easy to point the finger and say, that's why things got messed up. That's why things are wrong. That's why we're in the pickle that we're in. And I find it really hard to look at things and look for a reason to acquit, to not pass judgment, to release someone or some group from accusation. A very, very smart person once told me, Jeff, everybody's going through something. Everybody is going through something. And I love the fact that the Bible sort of acknowledges that when it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Why? Because everybody's going through something. So the Pharisees make this accusation, claiming that their traditional ceremony of hand washing is one, what makes one clean or, in, or, or pure. Now, this, from Mark's parenthesis statement here, this is not a problem of hygiene. This is not a problem of hand washing when you come in from working on the car or out mowing the lawn and your mom says, wash up for supper. This is not what they're talking about. According to their tradition, not the Old Testament commands, you go through this purity ceremony before you eat. Now, there, it was an Old Testament command that said the priests, before they make a sacrifice, go through this ceremony, but it was never intended for eating and the, the tradition that they've let it become. And they make their accusations, calling the disciples unclean, impure, or defiled. And Jesus' Jesus's reply is much less than flattering. Jesus says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And he references, he does this accusation, or he does this, 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 this scathing rebuke, really, by referencing somebody they would have all known about. He doesn't even ask them, you guys are familiar with the prophet Isaiah, right? No, he knows. Like, everybody sitting in here, if you're from the ranchos, all I need to do is say, I was driving north on 41, and I came up to Avenue 12, and it was Friday afternoon at 4.30, and you already know the debacle that I'm talking about. You already have the bottleneck pictured in your mind. Jesus uses that, uses that rationale. He says, Isaiah, who you all know about, who you may have used this verse before, he was talking about how you guys are being right now when he said, you people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He said, they worship me in vain, but their teachings are merely based on human rules. He says, you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of humans. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. He says they've traded the commands of God for a set of man-made rules. A phony, made-up set of man-made rules that have morphed and mutated over the generations and over the years. And when it says you have a fine way, he says you've made an art form of this. You've gotten creative with this. You've put some some premeditated thought in loopholing your way into and out of certain situations. 
I sort of read the Bible sort of weird sometimes. I like to put myself in the middle of a situation and imagine how people were reacting and how people were looking. I would imagine the Pharisees at this point, you guys, because my world is, junior high girls are so much a part of my world. It seems like they won't leave my house. They won't go away. The minute I get one into high school and graduated, there's a brand new one waiting to take her spot. And so, of course, I just kind of, I, I applied that to the way the Pharisees looked. And in my mind, they look like junior high girls. They're like, what? You know, what? And Jesus is like, you know what? I'm like, nah. And he's like, yeah, huh? You don't like that example? Let's shelve the whole hand washing example, he says. Let's just put that on the back burner. That was exhibit A. Let's talk about exhibit B. I'll talk about one other tradition you guys have. He says, for Moses said, in other words, the original law said, you honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is, the word is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And he says, that was just exhibit B. I've got a lot more. You do many things like that. Jesus says, why don't we get to the real point? Why don't we cut to the chase? Why don't we talk about the damage these traditions that have morphed into these crazy rules that you have? Why don't we talk about the damage these things are doing? He says, they nullify the word of God by adhering to their traditions. The main takeaway I have for today is this. Religious rules hurt. Religious rules hurt. My wife, I can, she used to always, she used to always say, somebody's going to get hurt. We used to have um, um, a, a thing I would do with my daughters when they were little. My two oldest daughters called math wrestling. Uh, and I stole it from something I heard of called chess boxing. Where these two guys... These boxers would get in the ring and they duke it out for two minutes and then the alarm would go off and they'd jump out of the ring and play chess for two minutes. And then the alarm would go off and they'd jump back in the ring and beat the snot out of each other for two more minutes and then just rinse and repeat until somebody either had checkmate or got knocked out. It was glorious. And I, my daughters hated math, still do to this day. And I thought, I hate math too. I share your disdain of arithmetic. But I loved to wrestle, and so did they at that point. It was anytime I so much as bent down to tie my shoe, it was like dog pile on dad. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to marry these two things together to make them more pleasant, or to make the less desirable one more pleasant. And so we came up with math wrestling, and we'd wrestle for two minutes, and then the timer would go off, and we had a big whiteboard in our living room where we would do math problems for, for two minutes. If you have young kids and they hate some subject, try it. It works like a charm. But I can hear my wife's voice echoing in the background. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get hurt. And we would look at her and go, nobody's going to get hurt. And then somebody get hurt. Religious rules hurt. Why do they hurt? Because they nullify the word of God. We talked a few weeks back about how God's commands are for our protection. The true essence of the commands are for our protection. And when they morph into a set of religious rules, somebody always gets hurt. But the kingdom we've been talking about heals those hurts. 
where religious rules hurt, the true kingdom we're talking about heals those hurts. And so now we've got Jesus going. Now he's, now he's sort of riled up. He can't let this thing go. He's like, all right, I had this little sidebar with the Pharisees. Now, you know what? Let's pull this whole idea of impure, uh, uh, pure, unclean, clean. Let's pull it back off the shelf because I can't let this go. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, everybody, listen up. Understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. A bold statement about the true source of impurity or defilement. And I would imagine a lot of people who are listening to him at this point, kind of their ears perk up and they go, careful, careful, Jesus. Are you going where I think you're going? So much so, the disciples, have you, ever, have you ever been like part of a conversation, you're like, I want to ask a question so bad right now, but I'm not sure how this is going to go down. And the disciples are like, you know what, anytime the Pharisees are getting taken to task, I'm, I'm just going to sit back and watch it because it's so good. But the disciples are thinking, I've got questions. <laughs> He's going to a weird spot with this, and I've got questions. So they kind of hold off, and it says, after... After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. You know, in chapter 6, Jesus' approval rating was like at an all-time high. Everybody loved him. Here in chapter 7, it's one of those days where he's just making everybody mad. He's just offending everyone. Even the disciples, he says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart that, deep breath, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly all these evils come from inside, and that's what defiles a person. So the disciples ask him, have you ever asked a question and then you're sorry you asked? They're like, oh my gosh, forget I asked. I just imagine the disciples are like pointing at each other. She's like, I told you. I told you not to ask him. He challenges the very command of the kosher law that specifies which foods are acceptable to eat and which foods are unacceptable to eat. He says, let's get to the real issue. Let's get to the real source of defilement, the real source of impurity. The hand-washing thing, that's just a loophole coming from a man-made tradition. It's an out to shirk not talking about and not addressing the real source of defilement. You can't just wash those things away. You can't just say you're pure when you have all this other stuff in your life. And in saying this, Jesus sort of levels the playing field. He sort of just brings, you know, it's like everybody out of the pool. He levels the playing field. Jesus did this all the time. There are areas of scripture where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And I would imagine the disciples are thinking, finally, because the Pharisees can't even keep those rules. Finally, Jesus is going to bring it down to a level where we can at least have a fighting chance. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he raises the bar so high that everybody's like, well, you, 
as a matter of fact, there's a part of scripture where the disciples literally say, who then can be saved? What's the use in trying? You've raised the bar so high. And this is where we really start to get a glimpse of this kingdom of God we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Jesus just levels the playing field by taking on the very law that all, this, all these traditions have come from. We're going to skip, keep your finger in Mark and turn to Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. It's right to the left of Mark. In chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we need to consider the difference. I think we got this slide. Yes. We didn't have this slide for service. We need to consider the difference between abolish and fulfill. When I think of the word abolish, I think of slavery, the abolitionist movement, the abolishment of slavery. It means to destroy. It means to demolish. It means to tear down, get rid of. Things like slavery, that's what needed to happen. It needed destroyed. It needed demolished. It needed torn down. It needed gotten rid of. But the word fulfill is a completely different word. The word fulfill means to complete, to bring to fruition, to make full beyond the need for any more. And Jesus says, this is what I've come to do to the, to the law. I have not come to demolish it. I've not come to destroy it. I've not come to get rid of it. I've come to bring it to completion, to fulfill it. The laundry list just exposes the real source of unclean and impure. Parts of scripture say the law was meant to expose things like the, what the Bible calls the depravity of mankind. The kosher laws were just a foreshadowing for the real fix or a foreshadowing to the real fix for the problem. Jesus begins to unveil this kingdom of God that goes far beyond just the people of Israel. So far, this has been sort of an infighting. And Jesus goes, we're going bigger than that. And he begins to unveil this kingdom of God. And it goes far beyond just the people of Israel. I can just imagine. The Bible's been around for centuries. But I can just imagine how novel of a concept this would have been for the disciples especially. For this, those disciples who have been on the receiving end of that accusation... And Jesus sort of comes to their defense and then he goes, but wait a minute. And they must have just, their minds must have just been reeling because now Jesus is saying, you know what? Here's how I'm going to clarify that. And they're going, Jesus, I've been a Jew a long time and those traditions die hard. These traditions are rules that, I mean, I'm trying. I'm glad you stuck it to the Pharisees, but I mean, you, you, got, you went to a weird place with this. No matter which side of that equation we've fallen on, whether you're the Pharisees and you're like, you know what, I cannot wait to get back to Jerusalem to tell everybody what, what the craziness that this guy's doing. Or if you're the disciples, you've given up everything to follow Jesus. And you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm not sure where this is going. No matter which side of that equation you fall on, would you guys agree it's all been words up to this point? It's all been a lot of talk, right? Very bold talk, very bold claims by Jesus, but it's been a lot of words. And I would imagine, if I would have been a disciple, I would have said, that's great, tough, but I'm going to need some proof. With a 
claim that bold, with a statement that bold, I'm going to need some proof, Jesus. And Jesus says, awesome. We talked about this verse a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20 <clears throat> says, For the kingdom of God is not one of words, but it's one of what? It's one of power. Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. He says, I'm going to prove to you what I've been talking about. So, pack a backpack, we're going on a field trip. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went into the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, who? A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit. She came and she fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Ouch! Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And then apparently at some point later, somebody got connected back up with her and said, what happened? She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Jesus finishes making a very bold claim, making a great speech about clean and unclean, acceptable and unacceptable, impure and pure. And then he literally ventures into a territory that was considered defiled and unclean to make a point. And he's approached by someone considered to be unclean. This was Tyree. This was the home of the unclean, the land of the impure. And this woman asks him. Mark tells us she was a, she was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. Why would he say that? To drive home the point that she was very much non-Jewish. Not one of the chosen people. Someone outside of Israel. And she makes this statement. This bold ask to him. And he ever, and he says, he says something to her that's actually an insult. But I would imagine him not even looking at her. You can say something to someone without looking at them, right? I imagine him looking at the people who have heard him make this bold claim. As if to say, the tradition says this, right? And she hears it and her reply says, her reply basically says, I refuse to believe that your kingdom is that small. I will not accept that that is what you came to die for. That the kingdom you've been talking about is that small. And she's undaunted by it. She's not offended by the offense. Man, couldn't we use a little more of that? And she says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is such an interesting thing that Jesus does here. Have you ever had a teacher that makes you so angry you go learn a bunch of stuff? I had a guitar teacher like this. I, I, he made me so angry, you guys. I'm like, oh, I hate you so much. I'm going to go practice so hard and I'm going to make so much progress over the next six weeks. And it was like, and he'd be like, mission accomplished. It's like a Jedi mind trick almost. Jesus, Jesus proves his point, but everybody else does the heavy lifting. And it's like he looks at her and he goes, she gets it. 
You see, guys, that's what I'm talking about right there. She gets it. Jesus says, I've come to establish a kingdom that is above these rules and traditions. The rules and traditions, the things that have morphed and mutated into something really ugly that have hurt people. And now that we've seen the hurt and hopelessness that the systems produce, he says, let's talk about the real solution. Jesus gets to the heart of the issue by his explanation and his words in the first few chapters. And then he addresses the solution and he proves it by his power. By our rules and behavior of trying to be good and clean, we actually fall or pure, we actually fall into the trap of nullifying the work of the kingdom of God. Paul says this in his letter to the church in Galatia. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness through the law that were able to be obtained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we're released from any rules or traditions that attempt to say who is worthy and who is unworthy, who is clean and who is unclean. We actually nullify or set it aside or disregard the word of God by adhering to the tradition of works and righteousness. I can work my way into insider status. I can be good enough to gain the approval of God. The kingdom of this world is a kingdom of works and behavior. That you're justified by your, it says you're justified by your behavior. The kingdom of God is one of faith. A faith that receives and enjoys the mercy and the grace of God. We nullify the word when we draw lines Imagine what things would be like if we lived like this. Imagine what our posts on social media would look like if we lived like this. Imagine what it would look like if I were not, if everyone were not offended by the offense. What life would look like if I looked for a reason to acquit and not a reason to accuse. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and what? Purify us. There's our word. Purify us from all unrighteousness. And in doing this, we experience the true healing that Jesus offered. And we get a glimpse of the kingdom he came to establish. And not only that, we get to reveal it to others. And in doing that, a lot less people get hurt and a lot more people get healed. As we wrap up today, I invite you to pray with me. Dear God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your house. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to establish a kingdom that goes far beyond our traditions that may have hemmed us in and hemmed others out. We ask that as we go back out into the places you've called us to be this week, into workplaces, into places where we relax, we ask that you help us to be a source of encouragement for people. Help us to be a voice that it does not accuse, but acquits people of things that they may be struggling with. Help us to uh, continue to, sh to, to help reveal your kingdom to others as we go about living out the lives you've called us to live. Jesus, help us to do this. We ask this in your name. Amen.